Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Dan Ivanovich, and I'm your host today. I'm the director of development operations at SmartLogic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. You may remember me as the guest from our first episode, but today I'm stepping into the hosting chair. Our first series covered Phoenix and Elixir in production, and today we're joined by our usual hosts from SmartLogic, Justice Epen. Hi, Dan. And Eric Ostrich. Hi, Dan. Today, we'll be looking back on our first season of the podcast. So let's dive right in. So, Justice, are people using Elixir in production? Some of us are. And Eric, what do you think was uh, your biggest takeaway from you know, season one? I think the, the biggest takeaway is probably that deployment is, we're still inching towards like the right way of doing deployment, but it's good to see things like uh, what Elixir 1.9 will have releases built in. So hopefully we'll, we'll be getting closer and closer to the dream world of just deploying it and being done. Cool. And Justice, we, you know, we saw a lot of different applications running in production, you know, variety of different problems being solved, different deployments. You know, what would you say is kind of the big advantage everyone's getting from using Elixir? Yeah, that's a great question. The one thing that repeatedly came up from nearly every person that we interviewed on the podcast was the ease of use in terms of the syntax being incredibly accessible for newer developers. Most of the people on that we interviewed were coming from like a Ruby on Rails background with maybe a couple of exceptions. And they almost every single one of them made the connection between the ease of use with Ruby syntax and the ease of use uh, with all the added performance benefits and like language level features like pattern matching. Uh, almost everybody made that connection. So yeah, I'd have to say that was the the thing that people were calling out. And Eric, you're SmartLogic's kind of resident expert on the Beam and OTP. How did that come up throughout your conversations? Kind of just how like rock solid the Beam is and how uh, I found it uh, kind of interesting. We asked what was an Elixir story that like where or a story where Elixir saved the day and like at least half the people were like, oh, I don't have one. Uh, so I guess that means it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, no uh, like news it, is good news, right? <laughs> yeah, especially especially with like production. Yeah, so I, I found that that kind of interesting. Awesome. We talked a bit about, you know, a distillery and it's kind of coming to the forefront in Elixir 1.9. Uh, so once people have these distillery releases, what were you seeing as uh, you know, a common way that we were, they were deployed? Eric? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The most common way that people were, were deploying these distillery releases was just through uh, Docker. And then if you took it a step further, Kubernetes. We even had a, a Mesos in there, uh, surprisingly. So yeah, do Docker and Kubernetes, uh, along with sticking it in AWS to their container service or uh, just like EC2 instances that running that's running Kubernetes was was definitely like the way that people are doing it currently. Um, it's also nice to see just a, a plane like Heroku, <laughs> um, just to show that like there is an easy way and an easy way that's still like very performant. So yeah, that's great. It's uh, always nice to have Heroku as an option. Um, you know, maybe it's not the best for all circumstances, but uh, seeing it as something that's usable in, in some real world environments is uh, a, a nice feather to have in our cap and a, and a good tool to be able to fall back on if, uh, if nothing else or when you're just getting started. Yeah, that's it, great. It, it makes for a uh, fantastic staging server. And Justice, how about zero town time deploys? Did uh, people seem like they had good solutions around that? So the big 
response that we got to that question when we asked about zero downtime was that people were doing the same old thing that they would have done in the past, which is like using load balancers and like rollover deployments to, to reduce downtime. So, and, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, so Eric, uh, feel free to chime in on this, but there's, you know, there are features in OTP that are supposed to make that very easy to do and almost no one that we spoke to is actually using them. So maybe that's an area for zero. Yeah. Well, um, so we, we phrased the question, are you able to get zero downtime deploys? And I, I thought it was interesting that everyone immediately jumped over the like, oh, we just do a rolling deploy and like the customer never sees a site is down message. So they, they like skipped all the way over that and just instantly went to hot upgrades, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing that that's even like an option and that that's kind of the default like assumption. But yeah, that was just interesting to see that, that like that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So would you say the takeaway then is that it's great that it's there and everyone's definitely thinking about it, but the reality is, you know, unless you're uh, running a, a large phone switch system like Ericsson, uh, you, maybe you don't really need it. Yeah, you, you kind of you need like a specific problem, which is extremely stateful, like in your application in order for it to kind of make sense. You should, if you're just doing Phoenix, like if you if you don't have state, you should be able to just hot upgrade kind of like however you want, as often as you want, because there's there's like, you don't have to j- deal with transferring state, et cetera. But like at the same time, you could just do a, a rolling deploy and, and get the same thing and don't have to like worry about it, any of the headaches that might come with it at all, so. Yeah, well, so Eric, you know, kind of while you're, while you're on a roll here, uh, you're definitely our resident clustering expert. Uh, did that come up at all in your conversations? Yeah, the the, the common answer for this as well was uh, no one deals with clustering. We're kind of still dealing with, I think most people are still dealing with like the common issue of I just have a web API. It's just like a website that's stateless, right? That's what HTTP is like built for. So stateless communication. So then that means the server is also stateless. So then you don't necessarily need to cluster anything because everything just goes straight to the database and back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if people did cluster, they primarily clustered it just so Phoenix Channels was on like the same network. Um, so you'd use libcluster for either there's a Kubernetes strategy is probably the, the most common use there or EPMD. You have like a, a known pet state or like pet cluster. <laughs> uh, yeah, so then you just cluster it together and PG2 takes takes care of everything and, and channels just works across it. So I, I think that's the, if you cluster, that's as far as you've gone so far. Justice, you know, you, you've been involved in kind of a lot of different projects here at SmartLogic and you know, those uh, environments are varied from, you know, client to client and technology to technology. Um, you know, I think one thing we're always kind of curious about is how Elixir is performing in comparison to others. Uh, you know, what kind of vibe did you get from uh, the people you spoke with around how Elixir performs compared to the rest of their environment. Yeah, so I guess I'll just make a few points here. One is that I was a little bit surprised that there weren't more specific benchmarks that people had made. And I, the reason I was surprised is because we went into it, Eric having done some benchmarks uh, with his side projects, thinking that other people would have done the same thing. But that wasn't really the case. So we didn't really get specific performance benchmarks that we expected to see. Um, the best conversation that we had around performance was not on any of the one-on-one interviews that we did, but actually in the lunch episode that we did at Lone Star ElixirConf, where uh, we really had a lot of discussion about uh, Elixir performance and, and why people don't really think about performance in a way that is uh, analogous to the way that it plays out in the real world. That being said, there is a 
subjective sense, and I'll just speak to my own subjective sense, I work at both, both in Ruby and in Elixir all the time. And, you know, the first time you run a test suite in Elixir, you can have like hundreds of tests that run in a matter of seconds. And, you know, that's a performance benefit for the developer that is incredible when you're coming from like the Rails world. Um, and then we had a lot of other person, like personal stories from people sort of uh, talking about um, like the, the, the performance benefits that they weren't able to objectively make claims about, but that their experience or sort of was saying like, yeah, this is way faster. We get um, way more connections, um, way more requests per second. It's like uh, just better. Uh, that being said, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get more objective benchmarks from people or maybe that there just haven't been as many benchmarks made. Um, and maybe, you know, at some point, Eric, you should talk about like what you did with X Venture and uh, we could do that on an episode. And if you want to hear about performance, go listen to the lunch episode because there's a lot of performance discussion there with people who would really know. So Eric, uh, background tasks, uh, you know, we've, uh, as rails developers, we've been through a lot of different versions of various things. Uh, I know it was something you were curious to dig into with some of the people we were interviewing. What was the uh, story around background task processing? Yeah. So I think we, we had started our journey by immediately grabbing for something similar to sidekick because like, that's what we know. Right. I found it pretty awesome. And like amazing that other people kind of, they just didn't. And they went straight to like the built-in primitives, um, which I think is, is is like, that's great. Like we have gen servers, we have message passing, like all this stuff. So you, it's just like there. So you can spin up a, like instead of sidekick, you have like jobs and workers, like you could take that worker. And then instead of it being like a thing that runs inside of something else, you can just make that the gen server that you send a message to that then does whatever it needs to and just like tears through all the messages that it gets. And you can use something like quantum that like if a, for some reason the, the worker got rebooted and like lost some messages, you could then uh, just like schedule a checkup being like, oh, have I missed anything? And like with those two things, um, either with, with a library or you could even just do like process send after. So like you have a, a side process that's just checking every, I don't know, hour saying like, hey, have I missed anything? And like, just, just with like two gen servers or, or one, um, you can get kind of all that is sidekick and it's just like built in, uh, which is, which is pretty great. Cool. So, you know, kind of speaking like about libraries and, you know, things like Verk and uh, EXQ and quantum justice, you know, I, I know you're always looking for cool solutions to cool problems. Any libraries stick out or anything you heard of that you, you know, are super passionate to go, go dig into deeper now that uh, it came up during conversation? Yeah, I mean, the obvious ones came up a lot, like Phoenix, Ecto, Distillery for releases, Credo, Timex, HTT Poison, um, some of the email-related ones like Bamboo. I think the one, the ones that were mentioned in an episode that we recorded pretty early on that captured my attention just because they were sort of a, a brain bender were Brooklyn's. Um, like functional uh, like libraries uh, one of them is called witchcraft and it's like about monoids and that kind of thing so that that sort of led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole and gave me a lot to chew on and gave me you know things that i need to learn about so yeah you know i think the beautiful thing about the elixir ecosystem is that so much is already built into the language that there doesn't need to be a lot of dependencies and there's still room to grow you know i'm working on a framework so yeah a little uh 
little shameless plug there for yourself. But that's right, right. Virtuoso chatbot framework. Look it up on GitHub. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think from my standpoint, as as somebody who has to manage kind of the projects that we're doing here at Smart Logic and we're evaluating technologies, you know, one of the things that I'm really drawn to with Elixir is is its stability. You know, and we're we're talking about you know bringing community supported projects into main in version 1.9, uh, but we're still talking about no timeline to 2.0 because the language is stable. And there's really no, there's only, I think, one planned uh, language uh, syntax deprecation for 2.0 and, and no timeline for that. And so that stability has a lot of value, um, as well as all of those kind of core functionality pieces that you can uh, give you the building blocks to build a lot on. And then, you know, there's still plenty of room for libraries that do cool and interesting things. And yeah, it's easy to focus on the the main few that everyone tends to use, but there being room for, you know, the libraries you mentioned from Brooklyn and, and uh, you know, the things that we're doing ourselves uh, to, you know, make our lives easier and to make reuse easier. You know, having those fundamentals to build on is, is really fantastic. I'll, I'll jump in and, and uh, well, as long as we're shamelessly plugging. Uh, <laughs> well, I was, I was going to come to you next. I'll give you a chance to shamelessly plug, but go ahead and start with your shameless plug for uh, external libraries and code, Eric. Yeah, so so we, since we do a lot of different projects as a consultancy, there's a lot of code that I've just been kind of like copy and pasting around from the different side projects that I've done. I've kind of like figured out what I like uh, and then would copy it into a project and, and that's just kind of bad. So instead of copying it into a, each project, we're starting to just kind of dump it all into a single one. Uh, that's called uh, Stein. That's S-T-E-I-N. Uh, so it's it's the Stein that can hold all of our Elixir, right? Dump puns. Yeah. So so th this this contains kind of basic user auth stuff, just the functions that deal with like the user, right? So like it's the way I've been trying to think of this is like devise, but without devise. <laughs> um, devise without the uh, controllers and views. Yep. Yeah. So it'll, it'll handle dealing with password resets, dealing with uh, like verifying an email. But then they're kind of the actually sending the emails up to you, actually making the views for a password reset is all up to you. So this is just like the change sets type of thing. Um, and, the, and the basic logic around like, I have a token. Is this expired? No. Okay. Then go ahead and update. Um, I think that's been one of the uh, rewarding things for us as a consultancy pulling in this new language is that, you know, giving the team some professional development time to, to work on these side projects that you guys have and kind of learn some best practices and then take that, uh, take that code, make it open source, and then be able to pull it in for the benefit of all of our projects. Um, you know, certainly uh, something that's great to do and um, happy to see us gathering it all together into one uh, releasable library. So Eric, kind of also, you know, in the same vein, as far as uh, third-party integrations, you know, you tend to lead that effort for us a lot. I know you have some strong opinions. Did you hear any strong opinions on how to handle some of these third-party integrations during your conversations? Um, so I, I don't know if there's particularly strong opinions, but I was I was happy to see my opinions also confirmed in that uh, for for better or worse, there's not a lot of like third-party libraries out there to like talk to these different APIs. Um, so you end up just taking an HTTP client and like hand rolling your own, which I personally think is, is the way to go. Because uh, then that way you integrate it exactly as you need it. And then it just doesn't come with a lot of the extra stuff that you need um, and whatnot. So yeah, a, a lot of people were doing that and just writing their own HTTP clients to remote stuff. So yeah. And I think that speaks volumes to the uh, strength of the fundamentals in the language and uh, the, the power of the, the few libraries we have for uh, talking HTTP and, and how well they integrate into the software paradigms of Elixir. Yeah, and I guess 
rolling back to the the libraries one as well. We have a new HTTP library out um, from the uh, core team of Elixir. Uh, I think two of them were, were started building one called Mint, um, which sends messages to processes uh, in order to be an HTTP client. So that's that's pretty cool. I, I look forward to being able to to play around with that one. Great, uh, Justice. You know, any any stories? We, we kind of mentioned this earlier. You know, sometimes the uh, the glowing recommendation of, of Elixir in production was that there were no issues with Elixir in production. Uh, but any anything that you took away just as far as Elixir saving the day? Yeah, we mentioned it earlier that the way that it saves the day is by preventing the day from having to be saved. <laughs> uh, but I will say there were a few good stories. I want to say uh, Ryan from Cluster Truck shared how at one point there was an issue while he was on vacation and because the language was so easy for other developers to pick up and his colleagues had a, like a very easy time going in and uh, debugging the issue and resolving the issue even without his support. Um, I think that was a, an interesting story. That, that, is, well, that was that episode, right, Eric? That sounds familiar. I'm pretty Correct. sure it was Ryan's yeah. episode. Yep. Um, yeah, that, that, that was an interesting story. I think that Jay from Kava had an interesting story as well where they um, ran into some issues with like a missing API key or something. So I'll let, I'll let folks follow up on that one if they want to hear uh, uh, the crisis recounted. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, we love to have those stories of, oh, you know, the system handled, you know, we got slash dotted or we were on the front cover of the New York times or whatever, and we didn't go down and Elixir scales so well. And, you know, I mean, those stories are, are fun and entertaining, but they don't happen to most people. What's way more common is your experts on vacation and somebody needs to dive in and do something. And uh, the language being approachable uh, and kind of easy to read and easy for the team to maintain, uh, I think is a really great story around saving the day in production uh, because production's running no matter uh, who's on vacation or who's in the office. Right. Um, so that's a great story for us to have. I think uh, from the Ryan's episode, we called it Elixir saves or Elixir solves the one bus problem. Yeah. All right, Eric. Uh, OTP. Any uh, cool OTP features besides uh, gen servers and supervisors people using out there? Uh, unfortunately, no. That's all you need. <laughs> well, hey, that's all right. It's nice to have what you need. Nice to know there's more there if you, if you ever end up needing it, right? Yep. So, you know, Justice, Eric, uh, you know, I think it's been a, a great journey through these episodes. Uh, you know, I think I've le learned a lot just listening and um, really happy that we were able to put this all together. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that we tried to use as we wrapped up every episode, and I'll, I'll use the same thing here, you know, looking back on these eight episodes, you could give one tip to developers out there who might be running Elixir in production or might be doing so soon. Uh, you know, what would that tip be? Uh, kind of thinking back over your experience to this podcast and, and personally. Uh, why don't we start with you, Eric? Uh, so I'll, I'll uh, echo the common answer of uh, just have fun. Uh, give it a go. It's less scary than it seems like it should be. Um, you can always fall back to Heroku, which is dead simple, and then work your way up to the cooler distillery and Kubernetes uh, much later when you need it. Great. And you, Justice? All I would add to that, because that is great advice, is just get started. And what I would add is that if you need help, there's a ton of community support. So go to the Elixir Slack channel and you'll find me there. You'll find Eric there. You'll find a ton of folks that are willing to help you with any of the issues that you're running across, especially if those issues are deployment related. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help. It's a really, really welcoming community. Fantastic. Well, Eric, Justice, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Uh, any any last words? Uh, sure. Go go check out the Smart Logic TV uh, Twitch stream every Monday at noon Eastern. You can uh, come watch some Elixir development uh, live. Stay on the lookout for season two. All right. Once again, this has been Smart Software with Smart Logic talking about Elixir in production. Thank you for joining us for our first season, and we hope to see you again soon.